0: Hello, welcome to Sport Lock, coming to you from central London, from the meeting of football's lawmakers, IFAB, alongside me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Tarik Pandja from the New York Times, and Martin Ziegler from the Times.
1: Good to be with you in person, guys. Yeah, we're in a very nice position overlooking the Houses of Parliament here. This is the 137th meeting of the International FA Board, the uh, the game's lawmaking body, and, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting people around. Uh,
2: the FIFA president, Rob. Uh, Gianni Infantino's in town, as... I guess, one of the main figureheads
0: of IFAB. A uh, big week for him coming up soon. Yeah, his re-election, his latest term, his second full term as president. So, I'm arriving carrying his own suit carrier, dispelling some of the images we see of him these days. His week that started in lavish surroundings of Paris and the FIFA best ceremony Day was in his tuxedo and white trainers.
2: Yeah, of all the places for, for that tuxedo and white trainer combo to be, Paris. Uh, on Monday,
0: was uh, the centre of footballing news. And Martin, you did you used to have the FIFA best vote, didn't you, from England? The journalist vote, although n- no more.
1: Yeah, no, I had it for, for the last three years. Um, yes, but no more. It has moved on to John Cross, the uh, chairman of the Football Writers Association. But yes, Paris is increasingly important for FIFA. Um, they've got an office there as well. It was a venue for, for their awards. And um, also interesting with the what happened with the French Federation president, Noël Legret.
2: Yeah, on that very day, we hear that Noël Legret has finally, I guess for some people, resigned after months and months of controversy, that investigation into his conduct, that alleged sexual harassment, um, text messages sent to female employees um, and all, all sorts of other cultural problems at, at um, the French Football Federation. Nola uh 81, finally fell on his sword. But he got lots of um, kind words on his way
0: out, Rob. He did, particularly from the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, praising him as an excellent president, having overseen the Women's World Cup. And he remains on the FIFA Council, that $250,000 a year position at least. And he's also got a key role in the FIFA office in Paris, doesn't he?
2: Yeah, and that office in, in Paris is getting um, increasingly important. It's it's the head of the FIFA development arm with a focus particularly on Africa. The clearinghouse for football transfers is going to be run out of Paris. And Noel Legrette is, is basically Gianni Infantino's eyes and ears in in that office. He was appointed to the role um, in January twenty twenty two alongside all the other roles you just mentioned. But there is no sign that he's gonna lose it
0: despite what's come out in the in the French investigation. In that FIFA statement from Gianni Infantino as well about Legrette, he was talking about how he has made significant strides in supporting the long-term development of football in France and talking about the best ever financial results recorded by the French Football Federation. Totally overlooking the scandal and controversy, and at a time as we say, of increasing importance of Paris to FIFA, that Infantino even referred to it as FIFA headquarters in Paris this week on one of his videos.
1: Well, that's long been the sort of rumor, hasn't it? They'll, they'll leave Switzerland, um, especially with all the legal issues going on between Infantino and the Swiss authorities, and they would go back to Paris. Um, LeGret, he won't remain on the FIFA council for long because there's an election in in April um, and he, I think even if he was to stand he, he wouldn't have much chance of beating Fernando Gomez who is the UEFA's sort of go-to person <laughs> to replace anyone who's uh in, in uncomfortable for for UEFA to have an, as their representative in on the FIFA council.
0: Well, we can now take a listen to what Gianni Infantino had to say when Tarek asked him about Nolograt in the post-IFAB press conference. Now the exchange begins with Tarek referencing how Gianni Infantino opened the press conference by talking about the FA chair Debbie Hewitt, the first chair of an IFAB meeting in the 137 years of the lawmaking body. Gianni Infantino also referenced the male-dominated media pact at the small press conference. Gianni Fantino did reference at one point you were here a woman who was filming the press conference in a slightly uneasy exchange. It certainly did highlight there is more needed to be done in terms of gender diversity in the media. Here is that exchange with Tarek trying to ask about Nola Grapp
2: too long, around right? 137 years for a woman to chair one of these meetings, and you're quite right to point out this room as well. Um, just in light of that gender, and trying to keep, I, <laughs>
3: What's your name? Jane. Jane. Welcome, Jane.
2: <laughs> just trying to keep in with, with that introduction that you made to, to, to the press conference today. I noticed on Monday, you released a statement heavily in support of Noel Legret, the French football president. He's had to resign because of this investigation and the inappropriate text messages to women. Um, and is he still retaining your support and keep that role at FIFA, given what we've just <laughs> talked about, you know, gender equality and better stewardship of the game? Uh,
3: what this has to do with the, with the IFAB? Sorry.
2: It's just your introduction was about. It's great to have women...
3: Yeah, chairing the IFAB uh,
0: meeting. Do,
2: do you want to come while well, 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 we're here? You might, you know, okay, it's up to you yeah. if you want to answer the question
0: or not. It's totally fine. Infantino, they're wanting to keep the focus on the IFAB meeting itself. However much, Tarek did try to get an answer, and we'll hear more from that press conference later on. And so many issues around the French Federation. In the last week, the France captain, Wendy Renard, said... She won't go to the World Cup with France. She's criticised the French system. She announced, I'm not perfect, far from it, but I can no longer endorse the current system, far from the requirements required by the highest level. It is a sad but necessary day to preserve my mental health. Then, two other teammates also said they would no longer play for France. And she's a figure who, on Monday night in Paris, was in the FIFA, FIFA Pro World Eleven, the team of the year, the women's team of the year, and she was on stage. What struck me was how this wasn't even referenced. You can imagine FIFA don't want negative issues around their big award ceremony, but those female players clearly want better conditions for themselves rather than just being garlanded with these awards.
2: Yeah, I, I guess it is an awkward one, isn't it? That, that um, ceremony was beamed around the world, there was a tribute to Pelé um, and it's supposed to be uh, I guess a show and, and a good news event, it's just awkward I guess for FIFA that took place in the city where a few hours earlier, Noah Legrette, the French Football Federation president was eventually pushed out, I don't know how you, you, you reference these things in a show like that, do you think they could have done it somehow Martin?
1: No, I think it's, it's, it's not, probably not the right time or place to do something like that.
0: If it was me, obviously I'm not the thief president. There's a way of gently introducing it into the show. You even say something like, we're here to celebrate the best, but some of our best don't get the best conditions. Subtle, as we see at things like the Oscars now, where social messages are brought in. So, an awareness perhaps, but without it being too dominant a theme.
1: Yeah, well, you know, perhaps you should be the master of ceremonies, and Rob, I think there's an opening for you there with that sort of subtlety. Um, But talking of the the Best Awards, somebody else who um, was there and presented one of the trophies was a Brazilian supermodel, Adriana Lima, who's um, caused a bit of controversy this week.
0: Well, she has. uh, Her appointment, actually, at FIFA as the first global fan ambassador This is ahead of the Women's World Cup. No sense of how this process was carried out, who they sought to fill this position, what exactly she's qualified her for it beyond uh, her global standing. And according to FIFA, her role is to develop, promote and participate in several global initiatives. And she was actually called supermodel in her first description of her various roles in the world by FIFA
2: yeah the the idea rob of a supermodel or a bikini model being made a fan ambassador particularly this year of all years we got the biggest women's world cup a celebration of you know female sporting excellence um but instead the focus is on i guess you know beauty and modeling the, the the tropes that fifa and the women's game is is i guess trying to move on from that women and girls are equal partners equal participants in in world football um, and this seems a little bit, I guess, old-fashioned, Martin.
1: Yeah, I mean, Moya Dodd, um, former Australia Women's Vice-Captain, former FIFA Council member, she's said um, FIFA are tone deaf on this appointment. Um, is this really the, the the sort of person, the role model they want to, to drive the game? Um, I, I can understand where she's coming from, Moya. Um, because I don't, it seems a strange choice. I mean, she may, yes, got a sort of very large social media following, and she can perhaps, you know, tweet things or put things on Facebook, which will you know, take help people. But I mean, I, you know, I don't really see the point of it. You know, what is she going to do? What's she going to bring?
0: That's probably one of the key things. What does she actually deliver? What benefits does she deliver for the global game? Is she someone who's going to be talking about? The sport? How does she engage with fans? What, what, is she there to to drive up ticket sales? What exactly is the point of her position? Or do you appoint someone who's actually a key marketing figure, a former player even? It helps to give them a role in the game. It's one of the things former players actually want often, if they don't want to go into coaching or media punditry, to actually have a role within football, particularly as we've just seen now, the generation perhaps stopping playing are those who haven't benefited from good salaries playing women's football.
2: Right, well, of course, FIFA has that Legends program already, doesn't it, Rob? It's got all these celebrity football players. We saw quite a lot of that Legends group in in Paris uh, at the at the awards show. So this is a bolt on. So are we going to see other celebrities being added into the mix? We also have, obviously, um, the 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 I don't know if he's an official member of FIFA yet or not, but the famous chef, the Turkish guy, Salt Bay. He seems to have a large Instagram following and he's been connected to FIFA and Gianni Fantino all this time. So is this a move towards celebrity people, be it supermodel, be it a high profile meat salesman or chef or whatever? Is that is that something they're going to do outside of football, do you think?
0: That's Nuzret, who memorably ended up on the pitch at the World Cup final and FIFA announced a review into how he would end up there. And it's very much the influencer world of FIFA. As we sort of uh, experience that sort of social rise for Gianni and Fantina on his own Instagram account as well. And if we just go back to what Moya Dodd said, she posted at length, she's wondering what image this was sending out on body image, well being, and healthy eating in terms of actually choosing her as an ambassador of FIFA approaching this Women's World Cup. And what she posted was. When a girl plays football, the world sees her differently. Instead of being complimented on her nice looks or pretty dress, she's valued for her game-saving tackles and brilliant scoring. She's admired for what she can do rather than how she looks, putting her on equal footing with her brothers in a way that can alter the whole trajectory of her life's ambitions. And what Moya is saying is that's the message that should be ringing loud and true around the world. Where a supermodel fits into this is truly baffling. There was a statement, wasn't there, from the representative of um the brazilian model adriana lima wasn't there
1: yeah so i think mean, moya dodd also referenced some of um some old statements that uh, adriana lima had made about um abortion and the fact um she was against gay marriage um and i think the response to this was this was historic comments you know she, she was now an ally in terms of lgbtq rights um so and that she'd sort of develop, you know she'd change her opinions basically um that, that was effectively it i think
2: Was that a recent transformation do you know or was it after you asked the question
1: <clears throat> i don't know how recent it was but that that was just the the response
2: also what was interesting is to see hear the powerful words of, of moya dodd there she was on the the fifa council for, for a Quite a while, so is quite known in the corridors of FIFA, and it seems like leaving the FIFA Council has given her that freedom that I, I don't recall her having when she was on the FIFA Council to speak about issues that that um, matter to her or matter to the footballing world, and, and that kind of makes you wonder about the environment of. FIFA, where once you're in the organisation, how free you are to speak on issues that that you feel passionate uh, about. Moya there clearly, um, with those words, has has kind of set a news agenda there.
0: Yeah, certainly in the headlines, and perhaps if you see no pathway back into that world of FIFA or other global sports entities, and you think, well, I'll just speak my mind and say what I think, and. Regarding the Women's World Cup, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, still no official response to the visit Saudi sponsorship of the tournament with complaints from the co-hosts, Australia and New Zealand. Saudi Arabia is so important in the world of football, particularly here in England, particularly in the Premier League with Newcastle United. We're, what, a year and a half since the takeover, but still questions about how that takeover was approved by the Premier League, particularly over the exemptions seemingly given or the guarantees gained from Newcastle, but have they been undercut in any way by Yasser Oramayan and the Public Investment Fund in the Live Golf case in the states, saying that they are government entities? Why does this matter?
1: The yes, these court documents filed in the US are intriguing. It's um the they state that the um the PIF. Should be regarded as a foreign state, and that it and Al Rumian are quotes, not ordinary third parties. They are a sovereign instrumentality of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and a sitting minister of the Saudi government. Now, the um, the interesting thing about this is the uh, the Premier League said they had legally binding assurances um, that the Saudi government would not control Newcastle. Um, So, not surprisingly, a number of clubs have contacted the Premier League as a result of these court documents to ask for clarification, saying, you know, if they're not controlling Newcastle on the one hand, but in a court document, they are stating themselves that they effectively are a foreign state. So, you know, does this corporate division make any sense?
2: It was blindingly obvious, wasn't it, at the time? I think we were kind of dancing around the houses. The fact that it's in black and white on the paper telling you that the clue in the name, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, is linked to the sovereign state, obvious. The fact that he's the governor of PIF, is a minister of Saudi Arabia, also obvious. The reason why they're doing this in the US is is quite interesting too. This is related to the PGA um, litigation with... um, live golf and the golfers there who are suing the pga so this is about a process called um discovery in in the american um system where you have to turn over emails um text messages and documents if if um if they're requested in the court case and the the case of these guys is they're saying look we're we get immunity we're we're sovereigns and we we're not supposed to or we don't have to because of that immunity provide this but in in america that immunity disappears if it's a commercial case if you're like a business not not if you're you know a criminal case in in that sense and the other interesting thing with this is if um the sovereign immunity claim is denied which it looks like it is up until now is you can also be deposed which essentially um an interview under oath on all manner of things. So it'd be interesting if this process carries on, what will come out?
1: Yeah, definitely sounds like one to to, to keep a close eye on. I mean, another interesting facet of this is that um, initially, the Premier League, they they believed that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was the owner and was a shadow director. Um, They... The the KSA, the Saudi government, they refused to accept this. I don't know why, which is an interesting question. Why would they not accept that they were the owner of Newcastle? And it was was such a big thing that actually it sort of held up the takeover for 18 months. And Mike Ashley went to to court the former Newcastle owner to try and get the Premier League to change their mind. But it says in those court documents that Mike Ashley said is that it, it... um, it says, um, having taken all external legal advice, the Premier League is provisionally minded to conclude that KSA would become a director. Um, we know that there was political pressure put on the Premier League after that. And then the, the Saudi uh, decided to stop um, pirating Premier League broadcasts and they sort of settled their differences with be in sport. And that was the sort of key to the, the, the change. But why would, why does the Saudi state not want to be seen as the owner of Newcastle?
2: Yeah, and that's ne- never really been explained because there is nothing in the Premier League rules to say
0: a state cannot own a Premier League club. No, which is obviously why there's still those unanswered questions publicly, why they had to say that the Saudi state doesn't control Newcastle United. And if we look at the board of the Public Investment Fund, it's headed by... Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. If we go through, then we go one, two, three, four, five, six ministers of the Saudi state are on the board. Then we've got an advisor at the Royal Court. And finally, Yasser al-Rumayan, the governor of the Public Investment Fund, who's running things at Newcastle United. So I suppose, can all these people, PIF, actually be running the the club while actually it's not the state controlling
2: the club? anyone who buys a Premier League club or hopes to buy a Premier League club would have to go through something called the owners and directors test. Um, and that has, uh, apparently it's quite stringent and it, it does background checks on all of the people and whether they're kind of legally entitled to, to own a team. Isn't that right, Martin?
1: Yeah, for sure. And the um, I suppose maybe, maybe at the end of the day, they didn't want Mohammed bin Salman to... Uh, undergo an owners and directors test, because imagine the, how embarrassing it would be if if that sort of raised issues. I mean, obviously, there was lots of talk at the time about the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the the Saudi state's involvement in that. So maybe it's all related to that.
0: Well, back to the iFab press conference, and I used the chance to ask about the one of armbands, Ralph, from the Qatar World Cup last year. IFAB does set the laws of the game in determining what is allowed on players during matches. And this was Gianni and Fantino alongside the CEOs of the English and Welsh FA's, two of the countries that wanted to wear those multicoloured armbands at the World Cup in Qatar until they were threatened with potential sporting sanctions by FIFA if they went ahead with wearing those unsanctioned pieces of equipment. It's still very relevant now because we've got the England captain Leah Williamson wanting to wear one love armband at the Women's World Cup this year. She wore one the other week in the Arnold Clark Cup. This is what I asked Gianni Fantino in that post-iFab press conference. Obviously one of the big rules of the game issue, laws of the game issue in the last year was equipment and we saw with the one love arm bands. Was that issue discussed at this IFAB meeting? We've seen some England players start to wear them again. Are you any more open to one of armbands at this Women's World Cup? Have you discussed those laws of the games?
3: Uh, we did not discuss them today um, specifically because we have the laws of the game as they are and uh, we have the competition regulations as they are as well, uh, as they have been and had been approved in the past before. Uh, the competition. What I can say on this particular issue is that uh, I think we all uh, went through a learning process there as well and what we will try to do better this time uh, is uh, to search uh, and look for a dialogue with everyone involved uh, the captains, the federations, uh, the players generally FIFA uh, from all over the world to capture the different sensitivities to explain to exchange and to see what uh, uh, can be done in order to express uh, a, a position, a value or or, or, what, or a feeling that somebody has uh, without hurting anyone else uh, in a positive way. So we are looking for a dialogue and we will have a solution in place well before uh, the World Cup, the Women's World Cup. Uh, I hope so. Definitely.
0: Gian Infantino there, accepting things could have been handled better around one love bands in Qatar of course England and other nations did put that request in in September two months before the tournament started and it was only on the eve of the World Cup beginning that they were threatened with the sanctions well this is what I asked the English FA Chief Executive Mark Bullingham who was sitting alongside Gianni Infantino in the IFAB press conference about one love bands and the prospect of them being worn in Australia and New Zealand at the Women's World Cup? Well, are you quite pleased that FIFA do seem open to one of armbands that the players would be encouraged by, perhaps? I think, as, as Gianni said,
1: that we've started a, a conversation. I think nobody, um, nobody enjoyed the circumstance that we had at the Men's World Cup. That was difficult for all of us. We've started a conversation to make sure that we can resolve the situation a long time before the World Cup, and we will absolutely be involving, you know, a broad range of people in that conversation. But the intention is to to agree
0: something. FA Chief Executive Mark Bullingham there. Well, Martin used a question to Gianni Fantino to ask about the IFAB decision on timekeeping. We saw those matches at the World Cup going beyond 100 minutes in Qatar. And that's something we're likely to see a lot more of now because IFAB has decided that FIFA's approach in Qatar must be followed all around the world in the Premier League and beyond and increase the amount of added time in matches to ensure all those stoppages do count and they are made up. Here's what Martin had to ask Gianni Fantino.
1: On the uh, the, the item about the, the additional time, I think a lot, of, a lot of fans supported FIFA's approach in the World Cup and you say it was agreed this competitions around the world sh- should follow this approach but how can you how can you ensure that
3: they do? Well, by by convincing them that it's the right uh, the right thing to do uh, by uh, speaking with them, by showing them our uh, analysis, uh, by clearly uh, seeing uh, uh, the benefits of uh, of this. We want to fight against uh, uh, time wasting. Uh, we want. Uh, the fans to enjoy the game. We have seen that at uh, the last World Cup, on average, uh, we had uh, a bit more than 10 minutes uh, uh, additional time. I'm looking at Pierluigi to correct me, and around 60 minutes uh, of um, effective time being played. Of course, with uh, variances in, in in different games, um, but it has been widely appreciated by by everyone, and uh, uh, the laws of the game are there the laws of the game are universal and we have to ensure that also the application of the laws of the games are universally accepted now we have seen from the analysis we made that already now there are uh, some there is a very inconsistent application uh, of these laws of the game when it comes to additional time or time wasting in different parts of the world with some leagues who have uh, their match is lasting less than fifty minutes, and others are at around sixty minutes already now. Um, uh, so we need first to uh, to convince and then to uh, implement. How are we going to assure that? Well, uh, by counting as well on the how should I say the good and positive spirit of everyone involved in football who understands the universality. Of the rules, so I don't think there is any uh, coercive measure to be to be taken in this
1: respect. Yes, we will, you monitor, will you monitor leagues,
3: yes, we'll monitor leagues uh, all over the world, and uh, okay. uh, we will search for the for the um, dialogue uh, with them. What is important is we are not changing the laws of the game. They don't need any amendments. They already foresee. Uh, these situations, we just have to apply them consistently all over the world. So there's no uh, stoppage uh,
0: clock. But we can be expecting longer matches in future. Something else from the IFAB meeting was confirmation of the decision from the January meeting that temporary concussion substitutes will not be allowed by IFAB. So the Premier League can't go ahead with trials and there's been other Criticism around the world, particularly from players' unions, the international one, FIFPRO. The word from them was a deeply irresponsible decision by IFAB to again oppose temporary concussion subs. The reasons to oppose are as flawed as the arguments to back the status quo. We will pursue alternative pathways to protect players. That was the tweet from Jonas Baerhoffman, the general secretary of FIFA Pro. Well, it was always good to be able to be face-to-face with a lot of the decision-makers in football, particularly Gianni Infantino at the IFAB meeting. But as we move back to some Premier League matters, a small update on the Manchester City case, something that links to that financial fair play case that's ongoing since those charges were announced a few weeks ago. Something we don't know if it's directly linked to the case, but interesting nonetheless.
1: Yeah, so this was uh, a company that was initially set up by Manchester City and then taken over, but it's called Fordham Sports Image Rights. And um, according to Der Spiegel, um, in 2013, uh, Manchester City sold the image rights of about £25 million um, for their players to this company, um, which was then refunded the money by the Abu Dhabi United group, which owns Manchester City. Uh, but UEFA auditors saw this and, and they, they refused to accept this as income. So that that attempt to sort of get past the, the FFP rules, which Man City were struggling to at the time, that, that wasn't successful. But this company has kept going. Um, and interestingly, the people who run it, um, a couple of financiers called David Rowland and his son Jonathan, and um, another guy called Graham Robeson, they... have all done. Um, worked uh, financial work for the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, um, and they've also been um, closely linked to Prince Andrew. So these are sort of big hitters, actually, in the finance world.
2: Really small world, isn't it? We connect all these, all these, all these people together. It's Interesting speaking about Manchester City and something you said earlier with, with Newcastle. You said a number of Premier League clubs had written to the league to, to investigate the Newcastle situation or clarified and um, something similar happened with with the Manchester City case as well where teams in the league pushed the league to you know get to the bottom of this get get into the investigation I found that quite interesting because in the past teams were not really pushing the league to investigate each other this this feels like something different
1: i think it reflects the fact that there's a lot of um anxiety over the sort of competitive balance in the league and the the influence of state owned or you know state-related <laughs> uh, clubs that you know the the, the other premier League sides feel that they're you know that that this is a, the, the the way things are developing they might get squeezed out um so for example, after the Saudi takeover, they brought in the rules on related party sponsorship um, to, to stop uh, these sort of deals, sponsorship deals being done, which would be on, you know, much higher than the true market value.
2: Speaking of uh, own ownership, there was a, a interesting um, the annual FT Business of uh, Football conference in in London this week, and a lot of it was about the current trend these these private equity. Um, companies investing in football in Europe and something I didn't realise, it was brought up by Martin Broughton, one of the unsuccessful bidders for for Chelsea with, with a group he was going to work with Josh Harris and David Blitzer on Crystal Palace and other sports teams. He said that in America it is impossible for private equity to own sports franchises. They are banned from doing that um, but in in, in Europe, there's no such ban. He said the reason for that is they, they don't think long-term and there isn't a, a kind of an investment in, in football. I found that quite interesting. And I was just thinking about this private equity. There are all these people using quite a lot of jargon maybe that I didn't quite understand. But I didn't see what benefit there is for football for these people being in the game. Like if if they're really successful, they will extract a load of money I'm not sure what they're going to bring to the table and if all these wild bets are unsuccessful there's going to be a lot of clubs in in
0: serious trouble. Yeah, it's obviously hoping that the growth of the Premier League continues, the value of the clubs got to go up and they can make a big return for their investors because obviously these private equity firms do have to deliver for their investors too and we saw this week Clear Lake celebrating they what named what was what was the award they won for the Chelsea deal?
2: I think it was the the private equity deal of the year um so that's two and a half billion pounds
0: Chelsea, which is pretty low in private equity terms isn't it
2: and pretty high in terms of football i mean the idea that that chelsea deal was a was a steal is is still quite um difficult to understand chelsea of course was losing a million a week and um they have to spend 1.75 billion over the next 10 years as well on top of that
0: Stealing a turn of phrase there, as in a, a good deal, not, nothing else. Um
2: and that was the other interesting thing actually at the conference, uh, that Martin Broughton, one of the losing bidders, brought up. He said, Um, um, I'm gonna paraphrase here. He said there was a cigarette paper difference between the th- the last three bids. Um and then it w- was quite intriguing then how um the, the winning bidder was actually chosen. This is the Todd bowley Clear Lake, Hand Jorgvis, the uh, Swiss billionaire, how they managed to to take it um and this there's you know it's one of these deals where the commission is was seen or reportedly one of the most um, significant in
0: a sports transaction um in recent times well finally on this week's sports and lots i spent part of the week at the English cricket racism hearings. This is uh, sparked by the scandal at Yorkshire, the systemic racist abuse at the county, sparked by the whistleblowing evidence of the former player, Azim Rafiq. And one of the notable things this week was the evidence given by the former England captain, Michael Vaughan, who stands accused back in 2009 while playing for Yorkshire of saying to Rafiq and three other players of Asian heritage, there's too many of you lot. And, He's denying ever saying it. He says he doesn't have full recollection of the day, but insistent he could not be racist because he was so proud of them. And it's a case that actually he's the only accused to be appearing at. And it's something that really is a watershed moment, isn't it, for cricket in this country?
1: Oh, you've been down in Fleet Street, Robin, and seen it all all going, going on in person. I mean, I've just been reading the reports. But one thing I, that has struck me is that the ECB's investigation... Seems to have been really, really poor, and I think whatever comes out of this hearing, if there's some unsatisfactory outcomes, and I think a lot of it might be down to the ECB. So, for example, on the Vaughan case, it's it, it's we we learned that the ECB's investigator, um, Mina Botros, he'd he'd tried to contact um, one of the players involved in the group of which Vaughan was alleged to have said this to that's at Rana Naved al-Hassan, sent him an email, got no reply and just left it at that. Didn't try and call him, didn't seek out his number, which, if this is a crucial witness to such an important thing, it just seems really sort of you know, poor, really.
2: Yeah, quite, quite haphazard given given the profile, given what we're talking about, given the promise of you know, leaving no stone unturned, not not trying to call someone or get a phone number seems a uh, you know, real dereliction of, of the responsibility there.
0: Yeah, this is quite unusual, actually, as a hearing. In fact, we're hearing it in public media, able to attend some of the days we sit in a separate room watching the stream of it. The England-Wales Cricket Board deciding for a public approach so we can hear a lot of this evidence being um, read out and in some cases cross-examination, so it is shining a light on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought one of the, the, another of the interesting things with Michael Vaughan said it, it's inconceivable he had said it, but he did, uh, he did say that some tweets he'd posted in, in 2010, a, a year after the the alleged um, comment was made, um, that he, he, he said he was disgusted by them now, and he'd had it gone on an inclusion course, he'd said, not many English people live in London, I need to learn a new language and that uh, England's Muslim players, including Marin Ali, had, had a special responsibility to confront strangers over whether they sympathised with Islamic terrorism. So um, I think it's you know, quite important that, that that was brought up in the hearing and that um, it, that was certainly given an airing.
0: Yeah, and that will be used to sort of assess his character, And um, Azim Rafiq in the past apologised for his own anti-Semitic posts on facebook and um, he's talked about the education from that moment as Vaughan has talks about learning from his own misdeeds in both cases the post only emerged after this case the wider york case was known and people went sort of searching around and these things did emerge that case does continue we're yet to be clear when there will be an outcome well that's about that brings an end to this week's sport lot from central london from the international football association board meeting Good to be with you again, Rob.
1: Yeah, but let's uh, hope we can do another face-to-face one very soon.